I'm Paul Chapman, and this is Post Media's Off the Post podcast. I'm joined this week right here in Vancouver by Ed Willis. Ed, how are things for you? Well, it's great. I kind of feel like I'm slumming here talking about the NHL because I'm like a CFL writer by day, but I, I can fake it. I can fake it for the folks out there. Well, no, the good thing about this is there's some things that you have obviously many years covering the NHL. There's some things that do relate to you there. So uh, just to let you know, let people know what we're doing. We do the three periods here at the Off the Post podcast. We're going to start off talking a little bit about some of the coaching changes that have happened, um, which teams maybe are in need of, of of a change going forward if we're surprised about what's happened there. In the second period, we're going to talk about the impact of rookies. Obviously, with Elias Pettersson, we're seeing that in Vancouver here. But look at historically what rookies are to the NHL and what that means long term. And then in the third period, we're going to talk a little bit about the Sens video, the Lucic situation in Edmonton. Um, and then maybe talk a little bit about the Canadians, Max Domi, and some of the things that are happening in Montreal and, and anything else we can think of around the league. But Ed, we will start with coaching changes. Maybe not so surprising that the Kings um, got uh, got itchy with John Stevens pretty quick, but I have to admit I was surprised when Joel Quenville um, was relieved of his duties, so to speak. I mean, the Hawks aren't in a terrible situation. I know that had a bad couple of weeks. You've been around the NHL for a long time. Um, is this a, is this a worthwhile thing, or is this just what they do in the NHL? Well, it, it it's interesting because like I kind of view Los Angeles and Chicago as being at similar places in their evolution. So you know, you ask you know why and how and who did they bring in and what were they were looking for. So Los Angeles brings in Willie Desjardins, who is a kind of an old school NHL coach. So he's not the fresh young thing that's going to reinvigorate. Uh, the organization. No, he was the fresh young no. thing when he came into Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't really that fresh or that young then either. However, so to my way of thinking, they're just thinking Stevens isn't getting enough out of this team. We are still a competitive team with a break here, a break there. We might be able to make some noise in the playoffs, so let's get the steady old hand. Chicago, and if we sort of accept the premise that Chicago is in the same place as Los Angeles, formerly a great team, bit of an aging core, to me, they're sending like almost a diametrically opposed uh, message that that they're not that close, that we have to go and get that fresh young thing. We have to get a voice to reinvigorate the franchise. So I'm just curious to see if there are any moves that are going to follow from that, if they're going to let Jeremy call it and, you know, run with this thing or, uh, with, with the cores that exist, or are they going to sort of restructure the whole team and get younger and get faster because that's clearly the way the NHL is trending. I mean, Chicago is a funny one, aren't they? Because last year, let's face it, they've been in decline since their last Stanley Cup, but I think they've always had that feel like, oh, these guys just aren't motivated. They get the right. I know that they gave up on Panarin for, to bring Shaw back because that's what the Stars wanted, but it hasn't panned out. You still have these so-called elite players. Maybe Taves isn't there, but Kane, Keith still seem to have some mileage left in him. This year, at the start of the season, it was like, okay, Chicago's back. Then it came apart in a hurry. So this is obviously one of those ones where I think they were thinking about coaching change in the offseason, but decided to give them a little more time. I don't think the drop has been that precipitous in Chicago. Two years ago, they win the President's Trophy. Then they get bounced by, you know, and there's a real analogy there for, for the Canucks, for me. The, the 2012 team 
wins the President Trophy, gets taken out in five games by the Los Angeles Kings, and then they fall off a cliff. Similar story in Chicago, win the President's Trophy, and they were probably, you know, the odds on to at least make it to the Cup Final. They get dusted in four by Nashville, and they're exposed, and it's been like the drop off the cliff since then. Uh, the other point I wanted to make was there's in, in the life of, a, of especially high-level hockey players, there's a point where you're kind of like a championship quality star. If you have enough of them, enough of these guys, you can get together and, and you know, realistically think you've got a shot at winning the cup. Well, you know, for the Blackhawks to have won three in the salary cap era in the space of six years is an extraordinary achievement to me. There comes a time, though, where those players, and I'm thinking of Duncan Keith, I'm thinking of Seabrook, and I'm thinking of Jonathan Taze, they're still very good players, but they've kind of lost that edge that really set that team apart. And I, I think if you're going to start thinking about chasing championships, you've got to have those guys kind of at the peak of their career. Because when they start to decline, and, and that, that story has been repeated throughout NHL history over and over and over again. I'll just tell a quick story because I knew Terry Simpson from my time in Winnipeg. He was handpicked. Uh, by the New York Islanders to kind of lead the team back because they were coming out of their uh, dynasty days. So yeah. this is not drawing a blank on the exact year, but I want to say 85, 86 was his first year. So two years, three years removed from their previous cup thing. The problem was they still had a bunch of those old guys around who were decent players, who'd won cups, who, you know, really made the franchise but they just couldn't do it anymore, and I think Terry was there for two years, and he ended up paying the price. He ended up getting gas because he couldn't extend the life of it or he couldn't turn what was coming around fast enough. So this is, a, like I said, it's a story that's been told many, many times in the NHL, and trying to strike that, find that sweet spot when your team is still relevant with veteran players and that point when they start to decline, that's that that is a mighty mighty task. And the NHL does seem to be a little more impatient with their coaches than other leagues. I wanted to ask you what you think the impact a coach can have. I mean, I know in Toronto, Mike Babcock was the guy. They have tried everything over thirty years to get the Leafs to be good again. And while they'd always had a collection of, of decent draft picks. It was like, no, we need the superstar coach. Now, it also helps when you get a player like Austin Matthews fall in your lap, but you bring in this guy with the experience who's won cups. Can a coach really make that big an impact? We have this conversation all the time, you know, amongst the writers. My opinion is his role is really overrated. The exception there is when there's kind of a confluence of events when an organization starts accumulating talent and they have the right man in the right place to bring it forward. And I think we're seeing that. I think Babcock is a good example of that. You know, he goes there, the, the the cupboard is bare. You know, in the space of two, three years, they're able to add Austin Matthews. They're able to add Marner. They're able to add players like that and build them. Now he's got something to work with. And I think if you go back to Quenville, Denny Savard was the coach in Chicago when they had accumulated all these. And again, you're looking, look at the Blackhawks draft record over a three, four-year period. And you'll see Kane, you'll see Taze. Keith came a little before that, but he was still there. And Seabrook was an 03 draft, that great 03 class. So you, when you have that group together and then you add the coach, but I, I don't see, I, I don't think a coach, just having the coach in and by itself, it's got to be, there's got to be these other factors coming together. Every sport does have sort of rock star coaches though. And, and I wonder 
Um, I think you, you might put Quenville in that category now where the people were shocked that he left. Do you think he'll be picked up by someone? I mean, this is a lot up to him, but do you? he might want a year off, but do you think he's going to be a midseason replacement for someone? It wouldn't surprise me. And I, I look at a team like St. Louis that should be doing better than they are that were clearly constructed to win now. I don't think, you know, you bring him in as part of a two-, three-, four-year plan. I think you bring him in if you want to win right away because, you know, that, that I, th- I think that's where he is right now. He, he, is, he is that guy. Um, uh, you raise another question. I would just refresh my memory because I had a point I wanted to make. But there just about, about oh, superstar coach. Yeah. Okay, now, this is this one was interesting to me because Babcock really reset the bar for coaches' salaries, and, and, and to me, that was a real kind of tipping point. In, in, in you don't see trends change that sharply in the NHL, but this was a new frontier. Babcock and the way he dragged along, so all of a sudden, you know, Quenville, who is kind of the guy who really deserves the money, gets six schmell a year. I mean, that was unheard of. You know, Stanley Cup winning coaches were one, one and a half, maybe two million, six, seven years before that. But the one that really struck a chord with me was when Claude Julien signs with Montreal. Okay, he wins a cup in Montreal. Montreal, I mean Boston, excuse me. Montreal's a bit of a tire fire. So they go out and get this guy, but they give him five million a year, a five-year deal. That and that. So that I, I, as much as I question the existence of whether you know, a superstar coach exists, the fact that they get paid like it now kind yeah. of changes the way they're perceived. Well, look at Barry Trotz. I mean, I know sure. that I know yep. those that deal was in the cards before mm-hmm. the cup win came. It seemed like that marriage was going in different directions. But to win a cup and go somewhere else is, I mean, that just doesn't happen in other sports. Um, on that point, just something that you talked about earlier is being the fresh young thing. Hockey seems to struggle with that. We've seen in many ways like the NFL how you don't seem to get a college coach generally be able to make the leap to pro. We haven't seen that in junior hockey no matter how many hot shots they've had. But John Stevens to me was someone who was a little bit like Dallas Eakins who this young guy cerebral was the one that was thrown around. He's new. He can relate to today's players. It just hasn't worked. I mean, who is like these fresh young guys that are supposed to revolutionize the game? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think Stevens had a little longer career at the AHL level than than, than Dallas did. Um, I, I think, and I'd have to do a deeper dive because I know he was mentioned, and, I, and I, re- I recall thinking the Canucks were targeting him. Yeah, they were at that point. And was that the year they hired? Torts instead. I think so. Yeah, I, th- I think yeah. I think it was. So I mean, I think they they wanted Stevens. Like he didn't want to come yesterday, but yeah, it, I know. <laughs> it was they, five years. They wanted ago. Stevens didn't want to come. They interviewed Eakins, and he chose Edmonton instead. And we know how that went there. But yeah. this is what I mean: is these guys come in, supposedly revolutionary thinkers, get away from the old school conservative hockey. But it, I I can't think of one where it's really worked. I mean, Balsma was another guy. Sure. Oh look, coaching genius. He had Crosby and Malkin. Well, it amongst does, other isn't parts, it funny right? The way that, that that always works. So I'm gonna so to dovetail this into the team I'm most familiar with, which is your Vancouver Canucks. And I, I like the way they've gone about it, too, uh, the, the, the way they've gone about it with Travis Green. Uh, a bit of a fresh young face in that he had no prior head coaching experience in the NHL, but he puts in a shift in Portland. He gets the head job there, and then he has four years with the Utica Comets where, you know, he's he's running the show. But when they bring him in at the time where there's not he's not overburdened by expectations, but they are starting to accumulate some nicer pieces around him, so he grows with the team. And, and so he's familiar with those players, that he's a familiar voice. I think that really has a chance to work. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of it. You know, I, I think it's kind of been done elsewhere. I kind of look at Carolina 
uh, with Ron Francis. And again, you know, they're, they're, they've, uh, I'm sorry, Ron Francis, idiot. Um, Rod Brindamore. Yeah. Rod Brindamore is, is the head coach. But, you know, bringing him in with the, like a young team and, and letting them grow together and sort of think of other examples like that around the league. Jeff Blaschel in Detroit, maybe. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I think this year's been refreshing. I, it seems like everyone in hockey wants to put the American Thanksgiving caveat on. It's yeah. still early, but Blaine until Ken you reach Holland that point. Yeah. yeah, it was Blake yeah. Ken Holland. Yeah. Ken Holland said it. And, <laughs> and, and he's usually right. Yeah, he but is. These things are like they get they kind of get passed into um, the— yeah. But if we look at the NHL standings, I mean, top three teams, Tampa, Nashville, and Toronto, three teams that people were picking at the start of the year to be, you know, real Stanley Cup contenders. But I look at some of the other names, and in particular Canadian, you know, you got Montreal in 10th, you got Calgary in 4th, you got Edmonton in 6th, or sorry, uh, the man that killed me there, uh, Vancouver in 6th. Uh, Edmonton curiously got off to a horrible start, but they've really picked it up of late. Are you surprised a little bit that there's teams that were really being picked? I mean, some of those, like Calgary, Montreal, Vancouver, all being picked to be yeah. real bottom five teams, and yet here we are. Still early, copyrighted, <laughs> um, but they're you know they're doing a nice job with what they've got. Well, yeah, and again, it has a lot to do with the market I'm in. But but I I, I look at Montreal and Vancouver's you know the, the the two real happy stories there for Canadian hockey fans. And I don't you know you could you know you kind of sketch out the scenario in your head. You know how is this team going to be better? How is this team going to make the great leap forward? And you'd look at those teams and you go, well, I can sort of see this, this, and this happen. But this, this, it's like five, six, seven things that not only have to go right, they have to go so gloriously right. It changes the complete narrative around the team, and I think that's what's happened uh, in, in 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 both cases. I you know in in Montreal's case, you know you know they, they get the finished kid, the center. Do you think he's going to be ready to play? Well, maybe not. But as an 18 year old, you know he's he's pulling a full shift. Max Domi had nine goals this year, last year. He's got nine goals this year, and seems to have really embraced that market, which is a really tricky thing. Um, you look at Vancouver, you know, Elias Patterson, yeah, MVP of the Swedish League, but, you know, maybe we can get 15, 20 goals, maybe we can get 35, 40 points. Well, it looks like he's going to surpass that by a bit. Um, you know, some other players coming underneath, flying under the radar, names like Ben Hutton, are, you know, aren't really that, that familiar with most hockey fans, but he's become a really important piece for the Canucks. Uh, Vertanen, we never know, with the good old shotgun Jake, but he's on pace to be a 25-30 goal scorer, and if he's that, that changes a lot of things for this franchise. Absolutely. We'll end the first period there, and we'll come back with the second period where we will talk about some of those young players as a nice segue, Ed. We'll talk about their impact on the league. How's it going? I'm Dave Breckenridge. I'm the host of 10-3, Post Media's Canadian News Podcast. In every episode, we take a deeper look at major stories happening in Canada, talking with journalists who are on the ground from newsrooms across the country. So once Off the Post has you up to date with the latest in the hockey world, be sure to subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. That's 10-3, Canada's News Covered. All right, I'm Paul Chapman. This is the Off the Post Post Media Podcast, joined by Ed Willis. Ed, I uh, wanted to talk about some young players here, notably 
Elias Pettersson in Vancouver. Now, I have been doing this podcast with writers from across the country, so I'm always sort of self-conscious to not give Vancouver more coverage than it deserves. But I have to say, seeing not only the fact that Pettersson, having missed three games with a concussion, um, has racked up 10 goals already, but it's the way he's scoring goals. He scored one in Detroit, which, of course, everyone hearkened back to Wayne Gretzky because of the famous overtime slapper against Calgary. I think some of these comparisons are over the top for someone who's only played 10 games. But I have to say, well, people are, because he was in Detroit, they're conferring him to Datsuk. Uh, comparisons in Vancouver, of course, to Bure and Henrik Sedin. And, of course, someone has slapped the name the Swedish Gretzky on this kid. Poor kid after 10 games. But he does not score tappens. He does not score, hey, it doesn't have the smell of a guy who's just on a lucky streak. We're seeing a 170-pound kid who's coming to the NHL, does not look phased by it at all. And is while teams are now paying attention to him, he's still scoring highlight real, real goals. How impressed are you, and do you think he, this kid has it in him to really carry this out through the whole season and beyond? No, I've been gobsmacked, like, like everybody else. And I, and I think at a certain point, you just have to believe what your eyes are telling you about this kid. And, and as you say, he makes he makes plays that only the real elite offensive players have been make not only in today's game but 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 throughout history. Uh, to me, the only thing that's going to stop him from greatness is, is an injury. He is an elite offensive talent. He has a complete game on top of that, which only, I think, you know, only exaggerates uh, the value he'll have to this franchise going forward. So I, you know, I think now you just kind of sit back and enjoy the ride and see where he'll take you. But, I mean, I'm like every hockey fan in Vancouver. Every time he's on the ice, my eyes are glued to him. And as often as not, he delivers something. And he makes these subtle little plays, too. I mean, he just, you know, it it was funny. I thought top to bottom, the game in Detroit, he had that spectacular goal, but he wasn't really good on the power play. And I thought it was probably one of his weaker all-around games, and he still had that amazing goal, and he still hits the crossbar in overtime. I mean, he is this far away from another two-goal performance, and you know, then you know, get everybody else, uh, get it, get get everybody out to to write the hosannas for the kids. So, like I said, special offensive talent that they come along once in a while. I've got the cheat sheet here in front of me, the Calder Trophy winners. Yeah, well, we you should get I, back I into say, it, but yeah, you, you did have the luxury of being in Winnipeg when. Timu was there, correct? Yeah. I mean, because that was one of the more remarkable ones. Again, European coming into the league. Yes, he's got a reputation of having a lot of skill, but this game is different for him. Guys are bigger. They're faster. You know, they'll put a target on his back. They're stronger. It's gritty. It's a yeah. big – all these things. And then you look at what Timu did that year. Yeah, he just Not, scored the 76. So yeah, that's, that's it. all. I, I think that it, this is an interesting topic for, for me. It, it seems to me like – sort of Calder Trophy guys, they fall into one of three categories. There is the full-blown phenomenon. Tamo was certainly that. Pavel Burry, who got it the year before, was certainly that. There have been other players throughout Ovechkin when he broke into the league, Crosby when he broke into the league. Then there's been like really good players and you kind of wonder where they're going to go. Like Nathan McKinnon won the Calder. I think he had somewhere in the neighborhood of 65 points the year he won it. Again, that's a great year for a rookie, but, you know, where's he going to go from there? And then there are just guys who are there because there was really nobody else. And I'm thinking of the Barrett Jackmans of the world who just, you know, happened to come along when it was a poor rookie class. So it is kind of interesting to see, you know, where they are as rookies and then trying to project where they will be. You know, we like to pick uh, on the Canucks – 
again here and last year if you go back to the fact that they had another you know a guy who probably would have been in higher consideration for the Calder had he not got hurt and Brock Besser well the Canucks tried to scratch him or not tried they did scratch him the first two games of last season there was this idea that coaches don't trust rookies and that's why with Pedersen coming in and all this talk about him only being 170 pounds and we know coaches are obsessed with defense and here you've got an offensively gifted player but has the contract and the salary cap kind of changed the way some coaches have to look at these guys if they're younger and they're impact players it's almost like you have they don't want to trust them but they're having to which is a bit of a change in the NHL because it seemed to me like they really like to bubble wrap their young players yeah, it, it seems to me you have to have two or three guys on their entry-level contracts or something close to their entry-level contract. So two or three guys who are producing at an elite level that really haven't cashed in yet. And I think that's what makes them value. And, and that this is what enhances Patterson's value. I mean, clearly he's going to be an $8, $9, 10000000 million hockey player by the time his next contract rolls around. But you've got him right now, and he's producing at a level and see what you can see if you can make that because this is really one of the real windows you have. Uh, Toronto's right there now. They still have a problem with Nylander, but they've got the other guys. This is really the last year for them because they're going to have to pay Matthews. They're going to have to pay Marner. They're going to have to pay. I'm not sure where Riley is. And I don't think he fits in there. But they've got some big contracts coming down the pike. So, yeah, these guys for sure. And, and, and there's just something about the way the game's evolved where younger faster, more skilled, more valuable than, than, than sort of those veteran heady players uh, unless they can do it at top NHL speed because you have to play at that top speed now. If we look at Pedersen again when he was drafted, uh, again making it local here, you know the Canucks ended up with a fifth pick in that draft and I remember like people weren't upset about Pedersen. He wasn't really on their radar. There wasn't a lot of talk about him, but everyone was so over the top about the Canucks not getting, with a second worst record, not getting one of the top two picks with Patrick and Hersher. There was just such angst that they weren't going to get an elite player. And yet here you are, what, three years later, and you're seeing a guy who pretty clearly would be the top pick top pick now if they went back and did that does this just say a lot about how we don't know what a kid is at 18 and you don't know what their mindset is or how they're going to adapt to it a a little bit that but I think when you look at the history of the draft more often than not right there there are kind of those those outliers that 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 pop out from you know with Steve Eisman was the fourth overall pick and the seems to me the guys who were picked before him were were Sly Turgeon I know LaFontaine went before them and Brian Lawton was the first overall pick in that draft right so yeah, number ninety-eight. Yeah, so you go, so you go, and 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 that story should be. But 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 I really think you know if you, if you if you're going to judge the you know the history of the draft going back to you know you know late sixties, uh, mid to late sixties when it starts, you you'll see you know where the guys pick as often as not are an accurate representation. Now, in in this case, and I, I can remember writing this, the glass kid from Portland. He was like six foot three, had ninety four points in the Western League. I said, "That's all I need to know about him." <laughs> and, and I thought for sure, and they and they passed on him, and they take Patterson, and you know he shows up. I mean, you look at him; he's like he's built like a, an HB pencil. There was nothing, you know, and he had, and he'd even played in the in in the Swedish second league. Uh, that year, and then all of a sudden, you know, he goes up to the elite league, and then you start hearing the stories and this, like, like just the, 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 this unworldly talent level he's got. And you see, now how's that going to translate to the NHL? I remember they were going to play him on the wing this year. Oh, I know. They didn't think he could handle the workload at center, 
And like the crazy thing was, I, I, I was at the Young Prospects uh, camp in Penticton, and Jonathan Dallin was equal, as equally as impressive as Patterson was. In fact, you know, the, the, the two of them were like Oates and Brett Hull t- together. They, you know, they were feeding off each other. They were producing goals. One would score, one would set up. up. They, they, there was so little to choose between them. But Pedersen just has that thing when, you know, the lights come on and the puck is dropped. He just, it's, it, it really, really is impressive. Yeah, there was something, the first game when he scored on his first shot, I believe, in the NHL um, and got the fans excited and the fans were chanting his name. I remember this this gif that came out of him at the bench just kind of nodding his head with a little bit of smile and he just seemed like, just like, oh yeah, no big deal. A chant of my name was kind of nice. It wasn't, I'm not comparing him to Austin Matthews, but... Matthew's first game when he scored like a, was that a hat trick? At least I'm saying yeah, got it yeah. four or five points. Yeah. These guys just have a way of announcing themselves on the stage. There's they're de- for for you're right. It's a certain kind of mindset. There isn't this awe of like oh I'm in the NHL I have to earn my place. There's this it's it's so good to see young players who just feel like they belong. Yeah, and then T- now Tamu was a little bit of a different animal because I think he was he was 21 or 22. He'd played in the Olympics for Finland in, in 92, and then he comes, so he's a little more of a fully formed character. And the same thing, the very first game he plays, it's like, you know, he's just playing at a higher, higher, faster level. He doesn't really start producing, though. It was funny, like, he was good for two, this is like the NHL of the early 90s. He was good for two or three breakaways a game, and he was having trouble. And he kind of, around game 10, he developed this go-to move where he'd come in in the goalie, freeze him with the forehand, put it in the backhand, upstairs, right? Yeah. The move you see all the time, but all of a sudden the goal started coming, started coming, started coming. And, you know, again, just to sort of connect the dots here, Burry was that same guy. I mean, you know, Vancouver folklore, and I was at the very first game because I was covering the Jets. Jets. Yeah, Yeah. I was covering the Jets, and it was as an an electric a sporting event as I've ever seen. Um, Didn't really do much, and then halfway through the first period, takes the puck and goes through the whole team, and the crowd was on its feet, and every time he stepped on the ice after that, you could feel that buzz, and it, it was something. You know, I have to say it's we were looking at over the last couple of years what looked like a pretty lean time in Canada for, uh, you know, for the fortunes of the Canadian teams. But we've talked about a good story in Montreal with Domi. Obviously, Pedersen's re- revitalized some interest here in Vancouver. Of course, you've got McDavid in Edmonton. You've got, you know, what's happening in uh, in Calgary, which is a great story as well. And you've got Matthews in Toronto. Um, when we come back for the third period, we're going to talk a little bit about Ottawa because while they've had better than expected results, they also made the news this week for something that was a little bit shady. So we'll be right back with that story. How's it going? I'm Dave Breckenridge. I'm the host of 10.3, Post Media's Canadian News Podcast. In every episode, we take a deeper look at major stories happening in Canada, talking with journalists who are on the ground from newsrooms across the country. So once Off the Post has you up to date with the latest in the hockey world, be sure to subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. That's 10.3, Canada's News Covered. This is the Off the Post Post Media Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman, joined by Ed Willis. Ed, I wanted to talk about this video with the Senators in Ottawa. And I know that the story is the fact that this was captured by Uber and they shared it. I think this has been going on forever. There's teammates sitting around there yakking about the coach, uh, what they don't like and everything else. And the fact that it's become public, they've had to apologize and everything else. But Ottawa, like from the Eugene Melnick videos to the Carlson um 
the controversy yeah. last year with his the girlfriend coach, Hoffman the and the assistant this, coach. Uh, and yeah, it's just, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's going it, on it's with this unbelievable. team? It's unbelievable. It, it just it, it is some, something's broken there. I, I don't know what it is. It's it, 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 but it is. It's how it's it's flabbergasting the things that have you know happened one after the other after the other after the other. If one of those things happens in the space oh. of five years, it's another. It's a not, great that's story. All, well, that and that's <laughs> what people are talking yeah. about, right? You're, you're oh, you're that goofy team yeah, where yeah. the this and the this happened. Uh, it's almost like water off a duck's back at this point. And, and and I I I think you're right. I think for the chattering classes, it's it's a sexy enough story, and you can you know, it, it says this, it says that. But I like you're you're so right. Like this has only been going on forever. As long as there's been team sports, I'm sure Sprague Claghorn complained about the coach of the Ottawa Silver Sevens in the 20s. There just wasn't any social media around to record it. So, I, I, I what a shame there wasn't. <laughs> which would, would have been great. Yeah. So. So yeah, I would. I I I am not going to take that one too seriously. It's like embarrassing for the Senators, embarrassing for some of the players, and especially embarrassing for Matt Duchesne, whose reputation has really taken a hit here in, in the last couple of years. Who I kind of you know like I he was on that 2012 gold medal team I covered in Sochi, and I thought he was like a real good kid, and he was kind of you know absorbing and learning you know the the game and the time honored Canadian tradition from you know all these great veterans, and it it just hasn't happened for him. No, and you're right for the players it takes. A hit but I wonder about the coach I mean yes complaining about your boss takes place everywhere even here I'm sure <laughs> um it, it that that's that's not the issue everyone does that but when it's filmed and it's out there I just like this is so humiliating for the coach the players have apologized but the loss of respect how like that's got to mess up the dynamic don't you think or is there a way past it well, yeah, you, you put your head down and you get on with things, and then if you find it really is broken, I guess you know so, soon enough. I'd never heard of the dude before this uh, before this video came. <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> you're famous, Raymond, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, 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 well, I, I, I was God, I was a little worried. It, it was, you know, my my, my friend Mark Crawford was going to get caught, <laughs> caught in the cross. I, I I think somewhere along the line they might have to look at changing things up there it's going to be hard with that owner to me that's where the poison starts and it's just kind of like like a trickle down effect from there when your ownership is is messed up you tend to feel it at just about every level in the organization that, that's so true isn't it i mean yeah. we can we can look at all sorts of organizations throughout sports and it really does the ones that are successful seem to have this one vision from ownership that kind of lets hires the right people and let them go on with it because I mean auto is not a bad story this year they, they got off to a good start they've slipped a little bit lately but you know they've got a couple they, they lose Carlson and they got that we were talking about rookies they got you know Maxim Lajoy fourth overall in NHL scoring or in uh, rookie scoring right now um, you know they've got a couple of other young players who've really stepped into the void but it's the off the ice stuff that keeps dragging that franchise back into it, and for a team that really had a surprise playoff run, what was that? Two years yeah. ago? Three years ago? Now people are looking at this team going, man, they came within the game the seven and making the Stanley Cup yeah. Finals, and again, but you know, look at the way that team was. And, you know, the pieces they had in place and, you know, they've lost Kyle Turris, they've lost Hoffman, they've, 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 they've lost Carlson. I mean, that team is a shell of, of what it was. Goaltending was got them so far. It, it looked like it was, you know, positioned to be a, f a force to be reckoned with in the Eastern Conference for, for a while. And it just, and it, you know, it just kind of like, 
And again, I, I keep bringing it back to the owner, but it, it just like he, he just did not have the uh, what's the word the, the vision, the strength, whatever leadership. it was. Yeah, leadership. And it, yeah, just just that kind of uh, stability to be you know to be able to provide stability at the top to let the people who knew what they were doing go about their business. I find that's that the stability comes from good leadership. You're absolutely right. I wanted to touch on a couple of other issues here. Um, one, of course, is the Milan Lucic hit in Edmonton. Um, now, this is funny. You see the isolation. You see him stalking uh, a player around the ice, waiting for his opportunity, taking a cheap shot, jumping on him, then the scrum starts and everything else. So, yes, it's a repeat offender. And, yes, Lucic will be called a meathead and everything else. But... This is, to me, is the uncomfortable truth that still lies in the NHL. And again, we'll go back to Pedersen and the Canucks. We saw this situation on the road in Florida. Uh, and there was a real fuss, I found, not just here in Vancouver, but through the NHL about, to me, it's almost old NHL versus new NHL. You may not like what Lucic did, and many will often think that that shouldn't be in the game, but there's an element to, it's a deterrent. It's the so-called policeman effect um, and maybe this is going from the game, but there's still a need from it in a physical game when young offensive players can get hurt. I, I don't think the game has evolved nearly as far as it likes to think it has because I, I still think I didn't have a huge problem with that. It bothered me a bit a little bit because it had that kind of Bertuzzi stalking element to it, to it as you said. But in, you know, in the end, he, you know, he hit him and he pinned him and he didn't really throw any punches. But a pretty clear message was sent. I think he's going to get suspended two games for it. I'm just wondering if, you know, the organization's going to go, you know what, that's that that's not bad. We'll, 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 we'll take that. It was funny that it was Chris Russell, but it was yeah. just, just, just yeah. the idea. It was just the oh, idea with Connor that, McDavid. That, yeah, that, that a liberty was being taken. Yeah. You know, and in Vancouver, it, it wasn't just like the Pedersen one got, got, got all the news, but there had been three other kind of questionable hits, all involving Canucks skilled players, younger skilled players, and there hasn't been a huge response from the team. And I'm going to be really curious to see where that that one goes because there's only like like the way Patterson's going now there's only one way you're going to be able to play him and that's hard and physical which is fine Gretzky all the great players have had to deal with it throughout their career right and I, I said Gretzky and I wanted to pull it back before, <laughs> before it was out but no no but every great offensive player has had to deal with that through if there was curious to, so it's so, to a certain extent he's going to have to learn how to do that but he's also going to need some help he's also going to need a deterrent provided somewhere along the line, I believe. I was smirking because, of course, the Canucks next game is in Boston. There we go. Where they have a little bit of history. And, yeah. of course, you have the NHL's biggest troll and Brad Marchand. Did you see what he pulled this week where he was faking the injury and mocking a player? Yes. who Like, where do you stand on Marchand? Because, again, when we talk about sort of, yes, the new exciting NHL, just focus on skilled players, goons, and everything is out of it. There still seems to be, I mean, look, Marchand can play. That may be the, the shame of it. But Brad Marchand has this under your skin, agitator, rat, grit, whatever you want to call it. He's got it down to a T. It, it's, it's amazing because he, he, he is such a good player. Like he, he is, he is a, a bona fide, game-changing top three forward on any team in the league. 
Do you remember Jimmy Hart, the mouth of the South? Yes, I do. Wrestling? Hulk Hogan's uh, manager. Th- yes. That, that's that's who he's always reminded me of. Like the guy who runs around, like with the megaphone. Except he's the nose of the North. <laughs> the, the megaphone, and he's always jabbing guys in the back and causing shit, yeah. and then running out of it. Grabbing it's, the ankle when the ref's not looking. Yeah. It's, but like his. Did he ever lick anyone? His, no, no, that 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 you know, and I give Marshawn like credit for just for the originality of that. But his rap sheet goes up. Like we're still talking about. Him. Remember, like, and we were talking about him before. We were talking about him in the Memorial Cup, and we just remember. I just remember that because the Vancouver Giants were playing when he was playing in Moncton. But that 2011 Stanley Cup series, he was kind of front and center and all of that. And there, there seems to be at least once, sometimes. Two incidents, one or two incidents a year, where he's front and center in, in, in this kind of theater of the absurd. And I guess I don't know. It works from I remember it was the last year he made his mea culpa. Yeah, yeah. He appeared and I said, "Oh, I got to stop. Yeah, I've got to. Uh, you know, this is there uh, like two incidents uh, already this year. <laughs> so, oh, it makes me laugh. No, he is such a total. And and you know that kind of like like. Rat player is kind of Stan Makita started his career that way. Theo Fleury was certainly that guy for a large part of his career, but he Marchand just takes it to a whole new level. He's just so theatrical. Yeah, and he has the skill to be able to be a value to the Bruins, yeah. right? And that that's a big part of it. I, I know you touched on Max Domi earlier, but I did want to spend a little time talking about Montreal. Um, again, if you looked at the Habs, a lot of people were saying that this is, you know, the most poorly run team in the NHL and Carey Price was past it and elite goalies are, are, aren't worth, uh, you know, the money you pay them in the NHL. Yet here we are and, and we look at Montreal and, okay, they're 10th overall in the NHL, but um, the trades they've made and Bergevin's been under a ton of scrutiny in Montreal. I can't believe he's still there, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. But he traded Pacioretty. He's made a couple of other big deals. He's brought in some guys, obviously, going back to the Subban trade. They don't have Shea Weber. He's still to return from an injury. That team's looking pretty good, isn't it? And again, Domi, a guy who was sort of lost in the desert, come and made his name. You talked about nine goals already. Do you think, again, is this just smoke and mirrors in Montreal? They're on a good run, or is this a team that's actually shown you something? Well, I, I, I want to draw the again, back, back, to, back to the Canucks, because to me, both teams have succeeded in this. They played the game so much faster than they did last year. They've cleaned out a lot of the old higher-priced veterans. And, you know, in the Canucks case, it, you know, it, it, it was the Sedins. It was Thomas Vanek, and I'm drawing a blank on another one. But they've replaced them with younger, faster, cheaper players. And it really affects the style they play. And I haven't seen a ton of Montreal, but when I do see them, that's what jumps off the screen at me, is they play the game fast. They play the game at NA, the NH, the speed you have to play in the NHL now to be successful. And it's got to be back pressure and it's got to be forechecking pressure and you've got to be playing at that speed all over the ice and they've they've got some guys and like Domi has found money I I, I question whether or not he'd ever be that kind of you know high-end offensive talent but I mean he's looks like he's going to be a 30 goal scorer and like I said he's he's, he's something about him he's kind of a, like I knew his dad pretty well uh, from, from Winnipeg, and, and he got this from, from from his dad, and that that's the ability to play in big markets, to really you know embrace all the notoriety that goes with it. Ty loved playing in Toronto. He loved playing in New York. He loved being in the center of attention. Max is a little different animal, but you can tell he likes the stage. He likes the stage, and he well, likes and the name certainly brings stage. that stage, right? Yeah. If he was not Ty Domi's kid, then maybe it's a different. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of, he's kind of got his own story to tell. He was, you know, he was like a top top prospect 13th player taken overall and things like that is 
dad was never that guy. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and like I said, and, you know, lost in the desert is so true. Like, he had a pretty good rookie year, but, geez, last year he was just, we saw him a couple of times. And he's like nine goals for a player with that skill set. That's 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 terrible. But, you know, and Galchenyuk was kind of that, you know, sort of we'll trade. He's had a decent start in Arizona. Yeah, well, say. it's like we'll trade our enigma for your enigma. But yeah. I would I would have taken the six foot three enigma, Galchenyuk, versus yeah. the, but, but yeah, no, full credit to Max. Out. All right, Ed, we know you have to get off to Hamilton for your CFL duties. Uh, appreciate you joining us this week. I'm Paul Chapman. This is the Off the Post Post Media Hockey Podcast produced by Dharma Kwana. Thanks to him for that. We will be back to talk all things NHL with you next week. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe through Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star